Uh, friends, it'd be good to keep your Bibles open and turn back a couple of pages because we're going to be looking together at the first part of Acts 13 this morning, 1 to 12. So it'd be good to have that open. Let me pray for us as we come to consider God's Word together. Our Father God, we give you great thanks that you have given us your word, uh, that we can read it, that we can learn who you are, what you have done in this world, and who we are, and how we should respond. So we pray, Father, that you would work in our hearts by your spirit, that you would guide our thinking, that you would give us a right understanding, but also, Father, that you might work changes in us, that we respond in right ways. And so we pray that you would do this in Jesus' name. Amen. So have you ever met a prophet? When I wrote this, I was thinking of you know, a guy with a, a big bushy beard, bigger than mine, and a loud voice. Maybe that's just my picture. But I wonder, have you ever met a prophet? Do we still have prophets today? I think we do, but I wonder if we would actually recognise them. Certainly in the church in Antioch, they had prophets. Luke tells us there were prophets and teachers there, and he names names. Barnabas, Simeon called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, who was brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. And as prophets and teachers, these men were the leaders of the church. Uh, the job of a prophet is to bring the word of God to people. And then as teachers, they would then teach the people what the word of God means and how they ought to live in the light of God's word. But as we think about prophets, we need to understand there's a difference between a prophet in the Old Testament and a prophet in the New Testament. A prophet in the Old Testament proclaimed, thus says the Lord. And that was it. It was direct. It wasn't open for discussion. Yes, the people were still to see whether what the prophet said actually happened. But essentially, the word of the Lord through the prophet was to be accepted. When we come to the New Testament... Paul talks about prophets in 1 Corinthians and you see there that what a prophet says has to be weighed carefully. In other words, it's tested against something else. It's tested, it's matched up to the scriptures, to the word of God, to see what we should do with a word from a prophet. But I think it's obvious, and I think the point here is that the prophets and teachers there in the church in Antioch had a very important role, didn't they? It was important work that they were doing. And yet the Holy Spirit has something different in mind for Barnabas and Saul. We see that they are set apart. Now they were doing something important, something valuable, but now the Holy Spirit says, there's something else for you to do, something different. Now, we don't know exactly how the Holy Spirit communicated that uh, to the church, but obviously it was clear to them that this is what was to happen. 
there was a particular work that Barnabas and Saul were called to. And so the church got together and they sent them off to do that work. Now, when we think about uh, today, we also set people apart. Missionaries like me and, and my family, we were set apart. We were working here in the church amongst you. It was great. We loved it. And yet we were set apart to do something different, to go overseas, set apart and, and sent out. But I don't think it's the same as what happened with Barnabas and Saul. Now, I'm sure the Holy Spirit was involved in some way, but not as directly as there in Acts 13. And I wouldn't say that we were called by the Holy Spirit to go and work in Jordan. And we didn't know where we were going to go. We just knew that it was time to head overseas somewhere to do something. What about you? Are you set apart by God like Barnabas and Saul were? Well, no, I don't think so. Not like Barnabas and Saul were. But are you called for some purpose, some work that God has for you to do? I think the, the idea of calling is a, is a really interesting one. Am I called to be a minister? Lots of people would, would say yes. But I think often when people ask, you know, what is my calling? They mean, should I be an engineer or a doctor? Should I be a, a, a nurse or, or a teacher? What am I called to? The Bible doesn't actually talk in those terms. See, when the New Testament talks of calling, it's about being called by God to belong to him. We're called into fellowship with the Lord Jesus. We are called to be his holy people, called according to his purpose, called to take up our cross and follow Jesus called into his kingdom and glory. And we're urged to live a life that is worthy of this calling. And we are called to peace. So when Christians ask, you know, what is my calling? Well, the answer the Bible gives is that you're called to belong to Jesus. That's your calling. You are called to live a holy life, a life that is worthy of being a child of God. That's your calling. And you can do that whether you're an engineer or a doctor or a nurse or a teacher. It really doesn't matter. Whatever occupation you have is not as important as the way you live. Now, we won't, might not be the first to take the gospel to Europe but it's still important for us to serve the Lord. God has important work for us to do. 
Now, Barnabas and Saul, they had a unique calling to proclaim the word of God to people who didn't know Jesus. It was the first missionary journey, going out to, to break new ground for the gospel. So it's quite a different situation to one that we might face. But what is similar is the message. In fact, it's the same, isn't it? The message hasn't changed. We proclaim the word of God just like they did. And so as we see them travel, they arrive in Cyprus, and that's exactly what we see them doing, isn't it? They proclaim the word of God. Now, earlier in Acts, in chapter 5, Barnabas was identified as coming from Cyprus. That's where he's from. And we saw in chapter 11 that men from Cyprus were the ones who brought the gospel to Antioch. And so there are some connections there for Barnabas and Saul as they head to the island of Cyprus. And they travel through the whole island they proclaim the word of God and eventually they come to the attention of a Jewish sorcerer and false prophet named Bar-Jesus. Now, Bar-Jesus just means son of Jesus or Joshua, if you want to use a different word for his name. Nothing to do with our Lord Jesus. But Bar-Jesus is a Jewish sorcerer. Those are very strange words to put together. Jewish sorcerer. They, they don't belong together. Sorcery is condemned in the law of Moses. And so you, you wonder, what has this guy done to be known as still Jewish, but a sorcerer? Well, we're not told. But we are told that he's a false prophet. And uh, so we're expecting some problems from this guy as a sorcerer and false prophet. He's not a good guy. But he was an attendant of the proconsul Sergius Paulus. Now, maybe he mentioned meeting Barnabas and Saul, and given his opposition later, perhaps he was trying to get them in trouble with the ruler of the island. In any case, the proconsul now sends for Barnabas and Saul. And we're meant to like this guy. He's an intelligent man, just like all of us. He wanted to hear the word of God and presumably words gotten around about what Barnabas and Saul have been saying and he wants to know what it's all about but it seems to be a little bit more than that because he wants to hear the word of God seems like he is seeking after God in some way but Elamas the sorcerer this is Bar Jesus the same guy he opposed Barnabas and Saul. He tried to, to turn the proconsul from the faith. And so Saul confronts this opposition head on. Filled with the Holy Spirit, he looked straight at Elimas and said, You are a child of the devil, an enemy of everything that is right. You're full of all kinds of deceit and trickery. Will you never stop perverting the right ways of the Lord? Can you imagine saying that to someone's face. It's pretty confronting, isn't it? Elimas, he's a, a Jewish sorcerer, and so he knows something 
about the Lord God, but it's perverted, isn't it? And Saul can see very clearly what this guy is like. He rebukes him very strongly because it's opposition from the devil. It's not just from one man. Sorcery is, is not innocent. It's not harmless fun. It's of the devil and it is against everything that is right. Now, perhaps we don't think too much about sorcery here, but it's around. It's there in the Middle East. Superstition and the evil eye and all that kind of thing is there. It's not too explicit, but it's there in the background. In other countries, certainly in many parts of Africa, it is right there in your face, isn't it? The battle lines are clear here. We have the devil and sorcery against the power of God as his word is proclaimed. And the battle is for the soul of the proconsul and for influence over the island of Cyprus. But it's not much of a battle. There's really no contest. Uh, Saul prophesies God's judgment on Elymas and says, now the hand of the Lord is against you. You're going to be blind for a time, not even able to see the light of the sun. And immediately mist and darkness came over him. He groped about looking for someone to lead him by the hand. It's a limited judgment. It's just for a time. And it reminds us of Saul himself, who was blind for a time. And it seems God is providing here an opportunity for repentance and turning back to him. Now, before we look at the response of the proconsul, I want to point something out. You might notice there in verse 9 that Luke tells us that Saul was also called Paul. Now, as a Roman citizen, he would have had three or four uh, different names that he could use. Paul is one of them. And contrary to what you might have heard, he doesn't actually change his name. Luke just uses a different name to describe him from this point. So the question is why? Why, why change names? Why does Luke call him Saul to start with and then Paul from here on? Well, I think Saul is the more Jewish name, and so in the more Jewish contexts, that's the name that is used. But this is a bit of a change here, a transition point, where Paul is taking up leadership of the mission to Gentiles. Up to this point, Luke refers to Barnabas and Saul, but from now on, it's Paul and Barnabas, as Paul takes leadership of the mission. Well, what about the proconsul then? Well, the proconsul, he's impressed. Look at verse 12. He saw what had happened. He believed, for he was amazed at the teaching about the Lord. He believed, for he was amazed at the teaching about the Lord. See, it doesn't say he was amazed 
at what he saw. I guess with a Jewish sorcerer as an attendant, he'd probably seen amazing things before. But what he did see this time demonstrated the truth of what he'd heard. It demonstrated that the words came with power and authority. Certainly more power than the sorcerer had because, well, he was blind now. I find this quite striking. See, he was amazed at the teaching about the Lord. What are you amazed by? What things amaze you? Creation? You go out at night and you count the stars? That's, that's pretty amazing. There's amazing scenery around in nature. Are you amazed by sporting feats? Those who run fast, jump high, ride for hundreds of kilometres. Maybe you're amazed at miraculous healing. Cancer gone. Cripples walking. That's amazing. But are you amazed at the teaching about the Lord? There are lots of uh, amazing stories that we hear amongst uh, Muslim background believers particularly of Jesus appearing to them in dreams and visions. Uh, we have a friend who tells us about how he used to be in the Russian mafia and then Jesus appeared to him in dreams and over a process he came to know the Lord Jesus. But the process is so important, it's vital because the dreams are not enough. They're amazing but people still need to be taught. They need the teaching about the Lord Jesus in order to find faith and life in him. See, God became flesh and lived among us. In the person of Jesus, humanity and divinity are combined. 100% man and 100% God. That's truly amazing, isn't it? God loved us so much that he sent his one and only son to die for you and me. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And not only did Jesus conquer sin, but he rose from the dead. He conquered death. And he promises that he will raise us to live with him forever. That is amazing. I think too often we lose sight of how amazing our Lord Jesus is. And we need to stop. And we need to look afresh at the teaching we know about the Lord Jesus. Not to get caught up in wanting to see 
all these amazing, spectacular things. But be amazed at what we know is true, at what our God has done for us. It's too easy to get distracted, to feel like we've heard it all before, even to forget. Friends, the, the proconsul, he was amazed at the teaching about the Lord. And we ought to be amazed. So let's pray that God will open our eyes afresh so that we are amazed at our Lord Jesus and at all that he has done for us. Let me pray. Our Father God, we are amazed as we think about our Lord Jesus and all that he gave up in order to become man. We are amazed that he came knowing that he came to die, that he gave up his life for sinners like us. Father, we are amazed that you in Jesus have conquered death that death is not the end for us that there is life and hope in Jesus so father we pray that we might be like that proconsul that we might be amazed at the teaching about the Lord that you would constantly remind us and encourage us in all that you've done for us in Jesus and so we ask these things, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.